This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 4th of November 2021. And we were joking yesterday, Norman, about the fact that we were running out of biceps to inject vaccines in in Australia. Of course, we're talking tongue-in-cheek. There's still more work to be done. But one big group that we've talked about a lot before that is not yet eligible for vaccines is children and under the age of 12. And in the United States, all the steps have basically been approved for kids aged 5 to 12 to start getting vaccinated over there. And Liz is asking, when will Aussie kids get theirs? Do we have any update on progress in getting vaccines approved for kids in Australia? Well, we don't really. It's been considered by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. They've got presumably the same data that have been given to the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. The government has indicated their expectation is towards the end of this year, um, I would imagine at the latest next year, that they've got the doses there. And anyway, the reduced doses, so they do go further in kids. So when we're talking about kids and vaccination, they they don't seem to get COVID as badly as adults do in most cases. They don't seem to spread it as much as adults do. And there's then question marks around whether, well, okay, what what are any potential risks of giving the vaccine when the benefit to that individual isn't as clear as it is maybe in an adult? Yeah, no, it's a live debate and it's a and it's a real debate. But the um, the, the balance of evidence goes very much in favour of the um, of the vaccination. So this is not an unusual debate in children. So for example, in measles, the risk of the really, really serious side effect of measles, which is um, a brain problem, is actually quite rare, but you don't want to get it. So you want to take the measles, although measles pneumonia and other complications are more common, but still not hugely common. But it's still a reason you do not want your child to get any measles complications at all. So we do immunise children already for relatively rare complications, and it's important that we do. And the second reason you get children immunised is that you want to protect other children as well and the community at large by having a higher level of immunity in the population and a lower risk of infection. So there's less virus going around. So those are the two reasons for COVID-19 as well. And the risks are low. It's a lower dose in children. And parents are already worried about their children going to school and being exposed, even though the risks of serious COVID-19 are really low. But when you do get the serious problems, that's what essentially you really do want to avoid, even though it is rare. So that's younger kids. And then older kids, one of the side effects of vaccination that seems to be cropping up in, well, in conversations a lot, I don't know whether it's actually happening a lot in the real world, is myocarditis, this heart inflammation, uh, heart pain that can happen. And it's not actually unique to COVID or COVID vaccination. People have gotten it in the past from viral infections. You can actually get it from COVID itself. And it is this rare side effect from the vaccination. And so there's a new paper that's come out that compares myocarditis if you get it from viral infections, uh, if you get it from COVID specifically, or if you get it from vaccination. And it's actually quite good news in terms of vaccination. So the the vaccine data that was submitted to the CDC did not suggest, which is a third of the dose of Pfizer, any increase in myocarditis beyond what was already known. And the data here, you know, in this study, which is a study in a hospital, looking at kids who are admitted to hospital with regular myocarditis, with the inflammation that you get in the heart from COVID-19, which is really a nasty form of inflammation, and vaccine-related myocarditis in young people. And what they showed was, first of all, vaccine-related myocarditis was the rarer form altogether, and that it was the mildest. And the most serious was actually the 
the regular viral form of myocarditis with the inflammatory form for, caused by COVID-19 sitting somewhere in the middle, also causing some damage. But even that you recovered quite well from. Right. So rare and doesn't last very long. It's sort of good news all around, really. Yeah, that's right. And um, you know, But this is pre-childhood immunisation. But the data submitted to the CDC and the FDA suggests there is no increased risk of myocarditis beyond what was already known. And remember, it's a third of the adult dose that's given for Pfizer. Well, I guess we'll see what happens here in Australia in the coming months. But one thing that we do have approved here in Australia is rapid antigen tests. And we've been bringing you, our lovely audience, some information about this this week or we've been trying to. So yesterday, we've asked the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, to give us some more details about what the different rapid antigen tests that are approved in Australia, how they compare in terms of performance. Because our guest on Monday's show said that there was some variation. Anyway, the TGA did get back to us after our deadline yesterday. And what they said was that... As of 1st of November, the Therapeutic Goods Administration had approved 12 rapid antigen tests for unsupervised use at home. Guidance has been published on their website regarding the performance requirements and risk mitigation strategies. Um, We'll put that link on our website. And as we suggested yesterday, there is a range of performance that uh, had to be met according to the company data for them to be approved. And what the TGA also said is what we implied yesterday in CoronaCast, which is that they've approved these tests within a range of performance. What you've got to also remember is that this is company data and the TGA takes company data on trust. But what we do know is that particularly New South Wales Health has done their own head-to-head studies of these rapid antigen tests and we're finding it difficult to get the results of those studies. Yeah, so if you look on the website that we'll post in our show notes um, on current, on the Coronacast website, you can see that each each of the different tests that are approved in Australia have to publish their performance data along with their instructions on how to do it. So it is in each packet. You can have a look at them and if you would like to, you could compare those things. But it's not an independent head-to-head test, which is what we're still chasing down. What I would want to say, Norman, is that They do have to meet standards that have been internationally benchmarked and rapid antigen testing is going to be a useful thing in Australia. I wouldn't want us to be undermining public confidence in something that is overall going to be very beneficial. But if there are differences between these tests, we want to be able to find that out. Sure. And we'll get back to you when we find out. Exactly. And yesterday we hinted that we were going to talk about a treatment that has been explored, another existing drug that has been explored to see whether it can help with COVID. And it looks like it can. It's actually a drug that's usually taken for depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. It's called fluvoxamine. How does it work against COVID? Yeah, so this is one of the fairly modern forms of um, antidepressants, which acts on the serotonin system in the brain. And there's been preliminary studies which suggest that it might work, might have an antiviral effect or an anti-inflammatory effect. Nobody's too sure. A small study previously suggested that it might prevent hospitalisation. And this is a larger trial in Brazil, which is a real-world trial where they're uh, like the British trial last year, which found that hydroxychloroquine didn't work and that dexamethasone did. Uh, which is about patients already in the system and they randomise you as you go and and they do it to several drugs against placebo. And in the Brazilian situation, they found that fluvoxamine did seem to prevent hospitalisation in the sense that it cut down time in the emergency department and reduced transfers from the emergency department to the hospital. The, the results are very messy. So it's it's hard to make a broad recommendation from it in the Australian context because the Brazilians treat 
people with COVID in a slightly different way and their definition of hospitalisation is different. There was also a signal that deaths were lowered in the fluvoxamine group. But when you looked at the statistics overall, there was no significant reduction in overall hospitalisation or deaths, but there was this signal. And so there's conflicting results here which need to be sorted out. But it would be really good news if this did have an effect. And they reckon it could have an effect that's similar to one of the antibody drugs or some of the antibody drugs that would be given to prevent hospitalisation and a lot cheaper at, I think, $4 a dose or $4 a course. I can't remember which. But $4 it's, a 10-day course, I think, yeah. Yeah, so it's very cheap indeed. And, um, and it's pretty safe. Well, I guess we'll watch that space here in Australia. But that's everything for today's Coronacast. If you've got questions or comments, send them to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then.